Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. Josh Adams. Boy. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Francesco Cesarini. Hi, everyone. Uh, now, you are the, if I remember, the CEO of Airline Solutions. So I'm the founder and technical director. Um, oh, okay. I'm more technical in nature, so I prefer you know, to kind of take on uh, someone who can do the CEO role. Oh, which, okay. Uh, yes. Um, so so, so. Since, since you're the technical director, and before we get into what Erlang Solutions does, I have a burning question. Is it Erlang or Erlang? <laughs> it depends on your. <laughs> it, it depends on if you put on a Swedish accent or an Italian one or an American one. Uh, everyone's right and no one's wrong, <laughs> so oh, okay. it, it just depends on who, who uses it. You know, it, it's. I think if you want to go back to the origins, you need to go back and ask a Dane how they pronounce Erlang. It's, it's, it's Agnes Carver, like it's a Danish mathematician. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Okay, so, well, uh, do you want to just give a brief introduction to who you are, what your background is, and what Er, er, er Lang Solutions does? <laughs> so yeah, um, so I'm Francesco. I've been, uh, you know, I, I kind of made my way to the computer science lab at Ericsson when I was still a student, um, fascinated by, you know, what at the time was a language which had just, you know, been released by Ericsson. And... Um, yeah, I've been working with the Erlang ecosystem for the last 20 years, 25 years. In 99, I founded Erlang Solutions. So we're a, um, a professional services company focusing around the Erlang ecosystem. So everything from, uh, you know, uh, development and support of Erlang, Elixir, uh, and Erlang and Elixir-specific stacks. So, you know, we do a lot of work around RabbitMQ, we're the main uh, drivers around Mongoose IM, so an open source instant messaging platform. Uh, we do a lot of work with uh, React, uh, the distributed NoSQL database, as well as you know, run events, um, you know, so Codebeam in San Francisco, Codebeam in Stockholm, you know, Code Elixir in London, and we also co-run you know, together with Jim Freeze, Elixir EU. And we also you know, provide support um, around the virtual machine. So we've got uh, people who, well, who are working on the Ericsson core team on the VM. And all in all, well, are enjoying it and having fun. You know, it, it's been a fascinating ride uh, seeing you know, Erlang you know, go from a programming language to a kind of fully-fledged ecosystem 
with you know tools and i think you know, we've got about 15 languages running on the beam right now so it's uh, it's not just about erlang analytics here i think mark was chomping at the bit to ask you some questions about what erlang solutions is doing with elixir well i know you guys are like a, a consultancy also like you, you mentioned a lot of the, the different um things that you're involved with in the community the projects that you kind of kind of uh, shepherd uh but like so if i'm an elixir developer and i'm perhaps newer new to an elixir language is erlang solution something that can actually help me i think that's a question people might want to understand so yeah what what we've done uh it, what we do is basically help companies uh, you know startups and enterprise alike with the adoption of uh, of elixir so you know the, the, it, and we take them the whole journey so usually you know, the, the the adoption you know starts with a proof of concept where we will go in and you know, work with the customer on a proof of concept to make them you know, decide if Elixir is or is not, uh, you know, the, the, the right, the tool of choice, you know, from there we, you know, in parallel, you know, and at the end of a, a proof of concept, usually do a go, no go decision, you know, will I base the product on Elixir? Yes or no. And if you, if they do, uh, we'll, we, you know, we, we've got training, so we'll start going and start training the team. We found that, you know, the productivity increases much faster if, uh, if you have proper training versus your know, classroom training over a few days versus uh, self-learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, if this, if it's needed, you know, we'll embed people in, you know, together in the project together with the customer and slowly you know, try to phase ourselves out and, uh, you know, remain available maybe for third line support. Uh, we also, yeah, we also have a tool which is based on around 20 years of operational experience of, uh, of the beam. Which, goes, which is called Wombat OEM. And this tool you know, will provide about 25 alarms, metrics, and, uh, uh, and notifications um, on, um, basically on, on the beam itself. And uh, yeah, it will there, it's there to prevent outages. So <clears throat> focusing very much on, uh, on non-stop operations. Yeah, I've seen Wombat and it looks extremely cool, but I haven't had the opportunity to play with it. It could be overwhelming at first if you're not used to it because you, know, you get 200 metrics and you wonder, you, know, you, you, you get activities on a per core basis. But you know, if you're a WhatsApp you know, handling you know, billions of messages per day, that's what you need uh, you know, to, to, to troubleshoot outages when you're in fact, you know, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And I think that's something worth mentioning again is that, um, that WhatsApp is also on Erlang um, and that is... And so I think that's neat, you know, just that you're talking about something that works at that scale and that Wombat OAM is something that can support uh, kind of the, the, the running and maintenance of a system like that. Well, it's yes. Uh, and, and it's based, most of the lessons learned were from the telco space where you just expect the system to work. And the only way you can expect the system to work is by going in and actually, you know, catching issues you know, before they escalate and cause an outage. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, you have to be paranoid to really run a telco network and make sure nothing fails, you know. It's true. I, yeah, it's, it's not something I want to take on. Wow, but, what a great segue. We'll <laughs> talk about scaling and resilience or uh, fault tolerance, I think, is another term that we've seen. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, I do want to get into that. And, and one question I had. Uh, Dang it, Mark. No, I'm oh, just going to go ahead. Now I forgot it. All right, we'll just jump in. 
no, no okay yes I, I remember it was just um the question is what was like from your perspective you've been in the erlang community for a long time elixir is a very new up-and-coming kind of language and it's kind of i don't know brought a lot of different people into uh into the beam kind of environment what was that what has that been like for you to kind of witness that and see that and then now there's this new set of clientele that you can perhaps help what's that been like it's been absolutely fantastic you know what uh what jose and and the whole elixir community have bought is a different mindset and a different approach to doing things and a very complementary set of skills you know compared to you know what we in the airline community have if you look at um and yeah at the risk of generalizing but you know and i don't want to generalize but um yeah, we, you know, if you look at your, your typical airline developer, uh, they'll go in, you know, they'll love, you know, complex algorithms and, you know, they'll program distributed systems and uh, they like to solve kind of really, really hard, complex problems, um, you know, telecom protocols and diving into the whole uh, SS7 stack and, and whatnot. And... They, you know, but without any major thought kind of on the whole user experience and usability, it, it's plumbing, it's server-side, you know, back-end infrastructure, mm -hmm. which is just expected to work. And I think my first uh, kind of recollection of actually beginning to socialize with, uh, with the Elixir community, I think back in the very, very early days, I think we, we provided a track. Uh, I think a year before um, Elixir Conf actually started at the Arlen Factory in San Francisco, just focused and dedicated to Elixir. And in doing so, you know, I remember being struck by the focus the Elixir community had, which was on UI, UX, usability, uh, user interfaces, uh, looking at um, user friendliness. So a whole new set of items which uh you know the island community you know wasn't able to handle you know and, and so it was you know two completely very i'd say completely complementary skill sets mm -hmm. which needed to be merged together to really get you know, the best of both worlds and and that's what really you know i think made me you know that's what got us to start expanding what at the time with pure airline master airline factory you know rebranding into codebeam uh mm -hmm. with basically the mantra that you know i think they're two communities out there which have a lot to learn from each other mm -hmm. and, you know, come in and listen to each other's talks. And, and we've seen how, you know, and we've seen how, you know, both have affected each other really, really positively. Um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, Erlang and Elixir are completely interchangeable as programming languages because a language at the end of the day is not the syntax, it's the semantics. You know, there are a few contracts you might have or might not have in one language or the other. Mm -hmm. but they're interchangeable but the types of problems which uh which um are being they're being used to solve are intrinsically different mm. so um what this has done is it has brought in a whole new set of problems and facilitated you know uh, you know other problems we were trying to solve in the airline world you know by you know kind of getting you know the airline side you know to, to create better tools uh, to create a you know, better infrastructure, but at the same time, you know, it's helped the Elixir side to go in and start creating architectures which actually scale. So going beyond the, 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 the typical Ruby on Rails, I'd say architecture, where you know you've got your your web servers, you've got your you know, database abstraction layer and, and Postgres, 
to, to actually something you know, much more complicated. So yeah, you know, I've just yeah, I, I, the, the 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 kind of positive influx has been on both sides, and it's uh, it, it's been fantastic. And it's really you know, thanks to Alexia where we finally realized that Erlang was becoming not a pro, it wasn't a programming language, anymore, but then whole, a whole ecosystem. Well, that's awesome. I really appreciate yeah. you sharing that perspective. Yeah. So as as Chuck was really trying to do, I'm going to let us do now, which was we, I'm excited because we have you to be able to talk about scalability and reliability, and it is some of those features that come with the beam that uh, like me, I'm, I'm newer to Elixir. I didn't come through with the Erlang community. Uh, I've been using Elixir for about three years, but uh, you know, so scalability and reliability are something I really appreciate and I value. And that is something that, that I get like in, in a, a lot of ways for free um, with the, the beam. And I'd, I'd love to hear kind of like, if you could kind of start introducing this topic to us. You know, it took me 20 years to realize why Erlang and Elixir, you know, by default, um, was both scalable and reliable. Until then, you know, I mean, if I were to ask you all, you know, why is Elixir scalable? You'd all give me three different answers. And if I were to ask you, why is Elixir reliable? You'd probably ask, oh, because of OTP or, or, or some other answer. Because it's not easy to actually figure out. And, and, and really understand. Uh, and it actually took me 20 years until I actually had to, I had to prepare a talk uh, for, you know, I was keynoting at, functional, at the Functional Conf in India. And in doing so, uh, they asked me to talk about, you know, the functional, um, the functional um, uh, the, the properties, you know, which influenced Erlang and Elixir. As, as programming languages. And in doing so, that's when I finally realized that the key to, to, to both scalability and reliability uh, starts off in, in the programming language semantics themselves. So, you know, you've got processes in Erlang and processes don't share memory and they communicate with each other through message passing. So basically it's, uh, it's, a, you know, it, it's concurrency based on a mutable state. And if you think of it, there are two ways to do concurrency. One is you know, the traditional way, which is you know, based on mutable state, and that's threads, shared memory, and locks. And you know, in the Erlang ecosystem, so Erlang and Elixir, we use immutable state. We use processes, no shared memory, and message passing. And it's the whole no shared memory which is the key to, to, uh, to, to, to providing this property right here. And if you think of it, you know, um, you know, if you think of, you know, mutable state. So if you think of threads, shared memory, and locks, if your process crashes when you're uh, executing in in your critical section, so in, in shared memory, you basically need to terminate all processes which have all threads which have access to that shared memory, because you do not know in what state uh, the shared memory was left in uh, when that thread crashed, and the second problem with uh, your mutable state is locality. You know, you've got a thread running in London and a thread running in, uh, in Colorado, so in, in, in Denver. Where do you put your shared memory? Where do you locate your shared memory? All of a sudden, you've got latency. You've got, you know, assume you decide to put it halfway, so say in Iceland or Greenland you now need to access that shared memory and that adds you know, time. 
But most importantly, what happens if your connectivity you know, towards your shared memory goes down? And it's not an if, but a when that's going to happen. You know, you, you know, the only thing you, know, you can be certain about when it comes to, uh, you know, to uh, networking is that you will get a network failure. And, and so you know, shared memory is great if you need to write super fast programs that will work, but they will only work on a single machine you know, for simple code. And by simple code, I mean a code where you assume that nothing goes wrong. If you look at you know, the Erlang approach to concurrency, um, your, 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 if, if a process crashes, your, your state will not get corrupted because each process will have a copy of its own state. So what you do is you just lose the state of the process which crashed, but nothing else around it is actually affected. Uh, if you look at locality, you know, you've got two processes. If you've got a process in Denver and you've got a process in London, you don't need to locate state anywhere because you copy it. So you don't need to put any data in, in, in Iceland or Greenland. They'll each have you know, their own copy of the data. And if the network connectivity goes down, you know, your, your, you know, your, your process in London and your process in Denver will still be able to continue running independently of each other. And you know, what you need to think about, however, is when the network comes back up is you know, creating consistency among these two processes. So that is, I realized, you know, when giving the keynote, was the key to both reliability, but also scalability. And, you know, what we do is have is, you know, we've got a, you know, we've got a uh, virtual machine, which has two, two features. The first feature is, which are critical here, what, the first feature is that it's highly optimized for large-scale concurrency, that means you, know, you can have millions of, you know, of processes running in your VM at any one point in time. And the second is, and, and what you can then do thanks to distribution, is go in and you know, spread these processes across multiple machines. And you know, what distribution does is it abstracts away from where things are executed, but it, it will not slow down the computation. Uh, all it does, it will slow down the computation through latency, but it will slow down one single computation. And if you start thinking of it, you, know, you start doing you know, hundreds of millions of computations in parallel multiple machines, that's when you get your scale. And you can do that completely transparently because you know, either you have, a million you, know, you have a million processes running on a single node, and if you run them on a single node or on hundreds of nodes, the, your business logic, your program is still exactly the same. It won't change that much. And so you know, th th that, that's basically is, you know, that, that is the key. But what, what, and, and that's how you go in and now scale horizontally. But there's another thing which is you know, scaling vertically, and that basically has to do with multi-core. You know, the biggest um, issue to, to scaling in multi-core architectures is memory lock contention. So what you do, you, you pick a programming language which doesn't have shared memory. So that means Erlang and Elixir. And that's how you now get, you, know, you obviously need to you know, think slightly differently. You need to think in terms of you know, avoiding bottlenecks. But you still get now um, vertical scalability where you can actually start utilizing all of your cores without, you know, with none or minimal changes to your business logic. So what that does is basically, you know, we've got immutability, which gives us concurrency. 
So a concurrency model with no shared memory. That concurrency model with no shared memory in turn gives us the distribution where we can distribute load on multiple machines. And that distribution will give us two things. It will give us the scalability because we distribute computation on a lot of machines, but it also gives us reliability because all of a sudden we can have two copies of the data of two separate machines. A machine gets you know, struck by lightning. The other machine has a copy of the data and it can still continue executing. And you know, together with multi-core and distribution, we then get parallelism, which allows us to now go in and, and scale, uh, scale, um, scale vertically. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's the secret source behind it. Uh, and what, what, you know, to quote uh, the co-author of my book, Designing for Scalability with Running OTP, you, know, you distribute, uh, Steve Vinovsky, he said, you, know, you distribute for scale <clears throat> and you replicate for availability. So you'll copy your data for availability, but you want to distribute on many machines to achieve scale. And you know, the Erlang VM has all of these features built in which really facilitate the way you can think and reason around all of this. Yeah, one thing I think is really interesting about it being a property of the virtual machine uh, rather than a sort of a bolt-on library, say, if you were in, I don't know, another language C, is uh, you, you know that the library ecosystem has to also adhere to this no shared memory because there's not an option not to. Um, so for example, in, in Ruby, I, I very frequently would pull in libraries that, that had shared things that, that messed me up and I ended up having to fork them. And I just, I, I can't have to do that in Erlang. Uh, Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if you were looking at, you know, one of the major selling arguments, you know, to using Scala was Akka, which, you know, was a great invention. It was a great library, but the biggest problem you had with Akka was all of the other libraries you were bolting on and, and using. Say, hey, you Scala, you have access to all of the libraries on the JVM, which all of a sudden started using shared memory. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, yeah, so, 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 hey, what's the point, you know? And I think, uh, you know, to quote Joe Armstrong, uh, you can copy the libraries, but if it doesn't run on the beam or on, on, on well, he used the term Erlang virtual machine, you can't emulate the semantics. And so, you know, you can definitely use, you know, ACK on the JVM, but it's going to behave very differently from actually, you know, running things on the beam. And the reason, again, is the beam and the JVM were built for two completely different things. And I think you said a really, something really, really important. A scalability and reliability is not something you can bolt on as an afterthought. In a programming, or the same with concurrency, obviously, you know, but the same, you know, and, and be that a programming language or any software architecture, you need to design with scalability and reliability, you know, from day one. Well, the thing I think is interesting about this conversation, especially around the scalability and reliability that's built into the VM, it's not that you can't necessarily make scaling work on other systems. I mean, I, I've done a lot of, of Rails. Course you know, you see Rails scale up to huge applications. Absolutely. The difference is, is that you don't have any guarantees of the things that make it easy to scale in Ruby the same way you do in Erlang because so, it's not built into the VM like you're saying. So 
more than so what you say is perfectly correct and you can scale any programming language all you need to do is throw more hardware at it mm -hmm. and again you know uh Erlang and, and elixir are not the fastest programming languages out there by far but what these semantics do is they really facilitate a the way you reason around your programs so you, know, you need to start thinking, you need to think differently when, 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 you're, when you're architecting your systems. And they, they really facilitate the way you're, you're able to reason around it and remove a lot of accidental complexities, which you would otherwise have with other programming languages. So you know, with very little change by doing it right from the start, you can achieve a certain level of scale. And uh, you know very very easily at you know and we've seen you know Phoenix um, Phoenix you know, handling uh, two million simultaneous open TCP/IP connections on a single machine um, and that again you know is possible you know thanks to each connection being represented by a process so the programmer just needs to think in terms of one single request you know coming from from a WebSocket uh, and and the workflow for a single request and then automatically the VM will scale up for you. So I, I guess maybe when we talk about scaling, we're talking about two different things then, because a lot of times we're talking about scaling and as a lot of people see scale and they think size, right? I've got a giant app that handles thousands and thousands and thousands of requests if we're talking about a web app. Yeah. And what you're saying is that when you scale, instead of thinking of it that way, you're thinking the micro case the one thing you know the one process the one request the single user yes it, it replicates as many times as you need it to and so the scale the small scale is the same as the large scale and so that makes it easier to approach that that is correct that is correct and in probably 99 percent of the cases all you need are two nodes you know to handle it for redundancy because you know, most of your traffic you know, will be handled on a single node. And you know, most nodes you know, can handle you know, tens of thousands uh, of requests per second. Tens yeah. of thousands, yeah, you know, depending on you the know, hardware. We, we've, uh, at work, we've just um, rolled out a Kubernetes cluster and we have a Rails application and we have several Elixir applications all in, inside this cluster. And they're kind of integrated services that talk to each other. But it has been so painful to get the Rails thing to scale. <laughs> Just like it sucks up so much RAM, and it's like CPU is like pretty high, and and it's like not doing hardly any work. And when you think of like what it's actually accomplishing, how many users it's actually servicing at the same time, yeah. you know, like and and like then you look at the Erlang Beam ones that are Elixir, and they're like chugging along you know, uh, handling this incredible amount of load and incredible yes. network traffic. And 5 like, percent CPU, if that, yeah. Exactly, yeah, they're like at, yeah, like at 20% CPU and, and the RAM is like, you know, pretty steady and it just doesn't, doesn't budge. It's like, it's so much nicer. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I mean, to be fair to Ruby, you know, Ericsson has had <laughs> an amazing team of engineers just focusing on the VM for the last 30 years. Yeah. So, and, and, and it's highly optimized for exactly this, you know, and it's, uh, yeah. And I don't mean to bash on Ruby. I don't because no, absolutely, Ruby, when, absolutely. when Ruby yeah. was created, it was created no. with a, a different idea in mind. So exactly. exactly. One, of the, one of the things I want to come back to is something you mentioned earlier 
is that you know the, these fundamental principles have to be built in from the beginning, and yes. you can't bolt it on as an afterthought. And you know, like if you could speak to that, because I know like there are people who you know be at Ruby and they're saying, oh, we want to you know Elixir's popular, maybe we can add pattern matching. Well, pattern matching is not the whole thing, right? That's no. And and you know, or if it's Java, or if it's you know Rust, or any of these other languages that are kind of newer and popular. Uh, but yeah, like, so uh, yeah, I, I it's, um, you know, and you're asking someone who's really conservative about adding new features to any language. You know, my view has always been, if you add a feature, remove one, because you know, languages have to be simple. Uh, you need to have as much simplicity as possible because that's critical when it then comes to maintenance of systems. And it's true, you, you just cannot add, you know, there are a lot of things you cannot just add as an afterthought to the programming language. Uh, pattern matching just changes the whole programming model and the way you structure programs. And well, what it adds is it, yeah, it, it basically gives you more, more concise, shorter, more readable, and easier to maintain programs. That's what it does. And you know, the same with uh, you know, pattern matching on the bit syntax, for example, which again, you have, yeah. It's more efficient too. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But again, you know, efficiency isn't has never been the key, no. yeah. the key part in in in, uh, in programming Erlang or Elixir. It's uh, I think you know, the, the the key parts here is you know programmer productivity and low maintainability. You know the low, the cost of you know low maintainability costs. And you know, we were talking about WhatsApp earlier. I don't think we in the Erlang community have been very good at kind of showcasing you know, how you, how you increase, you know, programmer productivity and reduce maintenance costs. When, when Even, they were acquired for a crazy amount of money, yeah. they had, had 40 engineers. No, that's okay, incorrect. Okay. They had 10 server-side engineers. Yeah. They had 37 engineers, yeah. of which 10 were server-side, 27 were uh, working on the mobile apps. So they had 10 and people managing yeah. traffic. Yeah, no, and, and again, you had 10 people uh, developing all of the new features, maintaining all of the existing features, and supporting the whole backend infrastructure. So it's the same 10 people who were doing absolutely everything. And, you know, they, they were the ones being called up, woken up in the middle of the night when there was an outage. And guess what? You know, very rarely was. Um, and, yeah, when there was, it usually wasn't, you know, because of any of their faults. So, you know, so it's, 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 and they were the ones who actually went in and advertised it. Even, you know, 37 sounds incredible for a company which, you know, when they were acquired, were send, selling, sending, you know, two, three times more messages per day than the total number of SMSs in the whole world. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and that was, if it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until WhatsApp got acquired, you know, that, you know, this, these, these numbers actually came out from an independent source. So, you know, the, the biggest and best thing was actually getting them, you know, to showcase the business case you know, for, for Aaron and Lennox here, because obviously no one would listen to us, you know, when we went and told the world that you're more productive. Everyone says the same thing, but, you know, $19 billion, I think, spoke for themselves. Yeah. yeah, I feel like the operational happiness aspect of, of Erlang's focus is also overlooked very often when people, when I see people online sort of discussing it, seeing if they want to get into Erlang or Elixir, all the time I see them going to, I don't want to say micro benchmarks, but, you know, CPU focused benchmarks. Yeah. And 
Yeah, like, yes, if you put C up against Erlang, yeah, it's not running on a VM. It'll be faster. But, um, of course. Of but course. That's, that's not my concern at 2 a.m. <laughs> you, you, yeah, if you need to write very, very fast code, if you didn't do number crunching, you know, don't use Elixir, don't use Erlang. But use, use Erlang and Elixir to orchestrate it. Exactly, 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 exactly. To control it, orchestrate it, you know, uh, aggregate all of the results. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and, not, and, and then use, you know, C, Rust, or Haskell, or whatever native microcompile language, you know, uh, you'd like to use. And yeah, I mean, micro benchmarks are completely irrelevant uh, at the end of the day. And yet they seem to dominate the discussions that I see online when people are evaluating languages. It, it, yeah, they dominate the, the discussions of those who don't really know, you know, what it is that, you know, of those who like to compare apples and oranges, I would say. <laughs> well, the other thing is, is that, I mean, if the, the forcing factor of a budget of a business that ran on software were CPU time or memory or things like that, then everything would be written in C and Rust. Absolutely. But the reality is, is that the forcing function for software-based companies is their personnel. Yes. And so they're going to use languages like Elixir or Erlang or Ruby or JavaScript or Java or C Sharp or something like that because it is easier for the software developers to reason about and they can get more work done in it and that lowers the cost of getting the software developed. Absolutely. And, and there's one thing you know, when you're talking about lowering the cost, which I think Erlang was the first, and it's now been copied in a lot of other places, which is OTP. So obviously Elixir as well. Um, because again, you know, we started off by talking about kind of the language semantics, which are then implemented in the VM, which you know, then give you this, this level of reliability. But using these language semantics, you can then bring, build frameworks on top of it, which abstract a lot of the common issues which occur. Can, I, and, can yeah. I have you define OTP real quick for our newer listeners? So OTP is, uh, I would call it the middleware, which hides all of the tricky parts involved in concurrency when it comes to concurrency. So it hides... Uh, let, let me give you an example. You've got process A sending a message to process B. And when you're sending this message, a lot of things can happen. Um, process B can fail before you send the message. It can fail after you've sent the message, but before the message is handled. It can fail whilst it's handling the message. Or it can fail, you know, right before sending, sending back the response. So these are all kind of patterns which you need to cater for because again, you know, it's software, there will be bugs in it. And what OTP does is it handles all of these issues which can occur. So these, these are just, this is one example, but there, there are many, you know, when you're dealing with concurrency, you know, you're dealing with deadlocks, you're dealing with, you know, there, there are a lot of tricky things to it. And what OTP does is it abstracts away a lot of these issues, handling them for you behind the scenes. So you, you basically get some processes which take on a particular behavior. And you know, the most common behaviors will be um, gen generic servers or client servers. You've got finite state machines, which I don't believe are used that much in the Elixir space, but in the Erlang world, 
they're everywhere. You, know, you use them for telecoms, you use them for complex protocols. It's a way of simplifying the code base of a generic server, client server. You've got event handlers, um, and, you know, and you're getting new, new, new behaviors as well in, in Elixir, which are now being ported over to Airline as well. And all of these, you know, all, all of these processes, we call them workers, they, they'll go in and, and, you know, and, and basically handle requests in a particular way. And what they do is uh, cutting the code base um, drastically. Now, these, all these processes are then handled by a supervisor. They're managed by a supervisor, which, whose task is to start them and monitor them. And so supervisors will, you know, what, what a supervisor does is you've probably always heard us use the let it crash mantra, which you know, will scare away managements, you know, because they think of crashing being something bad. But in fact, what let it crash means is that you delegate the handling of errors to your supervisor. Don't try to solve uh, bugs or corrupt state in your codes. Instead, you terminate your process and let your supervisor deal with that error. And what it does, it will deal with it in a standardized way across your program. So what you're doing is you're removing the, the responsibility from the hands of the programmer into, uh, into the hands of an architect who will, who will you know, think about the supervision strategy. So, you know, whilst you know, people say, let it crash, you know, they'll think, oh, we don't handle errors. That's wrong, you know, we handle errors, but we handle them in a different way. And so OTP will, will tell you how to go in and architect everything in a single node, uh, or, you know, on a single node. You're creating you know, levels of escalation where, and, and recovery strategies, which are built into your program without you even being aware of it. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe, to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So that was the elevator pitch. <laughs> you know, it was a very long kind of, yeah, it was a very kind of tall building we're getting up to, but, uh, but that, that, that's basically you know, the real power of OTP. And again, you know, it takes years to realize it. You know, uh, One of the other topics we've kind of mentioned was um, immutability. And I, like I, I run a meetup, and so we have a lot of people who are new to the community. And these are people who are like, you know, they're familiar with object-oriented programming kind of things. And they really struggle with the idea of like, how can you actually do anything with immutability you know and and it's like and it's like it's it's made me have to kind of pause and kind of think about how i can better explain this um but i mean there are it is such strength that comes from the immutability and and when i when i go back to and, and work in other languages i really miss it 
Well, well, what, what I've learned is when, when, when you get used to mutability and then you go over and program in other languages, you tend to bring immutability with you and you force it on yourself as a, in, in your programming style. Yeah, and then, you know, then your coworkers hate you. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it's, um, and often, you know, we've always said, you know, um, you know, I think we, you know, we tend to hear, we heard it a lot that, oh, you know, programming Erlang is hard. And, you know, we used to get it a lot back in the days. And the hardships were not so much, you know, learning programming Erlang, but it was actually unlearning everything you had learned, you know, with, with, your, previous, uh, you know, with your previous programming languages. And you had to change the thing, way you think and reason. The same applies to Elixir. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, what Jose has done is, you know, he's, he's been very good at kind of hiding the fact that you need to think differently until it's too late. And, you, you, you know, you, you've basically, uh, yeah, you're past the halfway mark. So you're returning back, you know, to go with, you know, it will, will take you more than actually continuing, you know, to, to the end. And it, 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 yeah, and it requires a different mindset, different way of thinking. And, uh, but once you get used to it, it, it actually becomes a very natural way of thinking because, uh, it's um, yeah. It kind of reflects you know the world around us, uh, and and this is then you know directly applied to the, the whole notion of, you know, to the concurrency model as well. Um, I just want to uh, explain kind of uh, what you mentioned there. Like it, it reflects the world around us. I've heard Joe Armstrong talk about this, and I, it's a, a concept. I think I just want to make sure uh, you, our dear listener, understand is that um, like if you think about people we, a, a person really maps very cleanly to a process in terms of how a process works. It has its own internal state, uh, like how I think, you know, what is in my head, you don't know unless I tell you by sending a message. You know, like this is how our world works. We intuitively understand this. And, and so when you come to Elixir, you don't see that right away. And, and yeah, the world is concurrent. Like, you know, like everyone is like running along in their own little cars, doing their own little thing, their own little world. And, and we're just like sending messages to each other to say, hey, uh, I have this task for you to do. Can you help me out? Or how did that go? What's the result of this? You know, that's, that's what we're doing. And that's, so it's an, it is truly uh, like how the world works and it's how the beam works. And so it, once you kind of g- grasp that, then it becomes natural. I just want to make, I just want, you, you kind of said that and just let it slide right by. I was like, no, no, that's a gem. People need to, to, to catch on to that one. And I wanted to add a fourth thing, which is basically shit happens. Things fail. You know, once we're done with this uh, podcast, I could, you know, walk out on the street and get hit by a bus because, you know, as you know, here in Britain, they ride, drive on the wrong side. <laughs> and uh, and, and he, yeah, we hope it doesn't happen. But if it does happen... Uh, you know, you guys will continue with the podcast. Uh, and so things continue. Uh, and so, you know, model a programming language around this. And so, yeah, it, it's a natural way of thinking, but it's not, you know, for many people, it's not a natural way of thinking when they program. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it takes very little to get used to it. But it's one needs to, you know, push themselves you know, to actually start thinking currently. Right. And that's what you were talking about earlier, right? If you get yeah. hit by a bus, you don't have to restart all of us in order the, for the world to keep going. <laughs> Exactly. Reboot the world. The the podcast continues and you know someone else will hop in to replace me. 
Yeah, and, and that's just the way Ireland works, you know. Uh, you know, thanks to thanks to the no shared memory approach. So, so yeah, no, that was a very good analogy. Um, one thing I wanted to add also is that you know, thanks to OTP, you're writing well, you know, and architecting everything. You know, you're able to write frameworks, which you know, it's much easier to write these frameworks, which give you the distribution and the full tolerance. And you know, and you know, the simplicity also makes it much, much more easier to maintain. So you know, we look at you know the scalability, but we look at the full tolerance. So it originates from kind of the language semantics, which are then implemented in the virtual machine. The virtual machine will then affect the the programming language themselves, and then the libraries, the generic libraries, which you write on top of it. Um, you know, you know are, are much easier to write, which you, you then use as a programmer. And so all of these lab levels, you know, have full tolerance and scalability in mind. And they had this full tolerance and scalability in mind when they were developed. So how does this translate into the frameworks then? What do you mean? Uh, could you rephrase the question? So, so I, okay. A lot of the work that, that I see done in Elixir is Phoenix. And yes. then we also see it in like nerves mm. and things like that. that mm. You know, so these, there are these exactly. different areas that, that this kind of, you know, where we've got Erlang and then we've got OTP and then we, you know, so we've got these things stacked on top of each other, right? And at the top level, the things that I'm building usually have three or four layers underneath Of oh, abstraction, exactly, yes. So, so how, does, how does this affect the world that I'm working in? Because I'm not writing OTP, I'm writing Phoenix or I'm writing NERV. Exactly, you're, you're, you're writing process to do th a thing, right? Okay, perfect, yes. So, um, so what this does is it makes these frameworks, it becomes much easier to, to, to write these frameworks. So if you start thinking, you know, you start implementing, you know, tons of different endpoints, um, you know, or, or what happens if, you know, if there's a bug in your code, you know, the, you know, the, you know, particular process handling an endpoint will terminate, but none of the, yeah, you know, and the supervisor will catch it and most likely just go in and close the WebSocket. So, you know, and it won't go in and affect any of the other, you know, endpoints which are being handled concurrently. You know, you go in and you lose a thread in, in Java, you know, all of the requests, you know, going through that thread will be lost. And the same applies to Python uh, and other languages. So that, that is how, you know, that, that is how these frameworks uh, facilitate it. So you just don't see them, they're there, you know, and in some cases, there will be cases in Phoenix where, you know, you will have issues with processes crashing and then automatically being restarted. And, you know, most likely you as an end user, even the end users won't see it uh, and, and won't see that happening. So, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, it would have been possible for, uh, you know, Chris, you know, to, to implement Phoenix, you know, to the level he got it at, uh, you know, without OTP. It's yeah. kind of built into how you architect your system. I was going to add, like, also it, you, you get access to all of the power of, of the beam sort of inherently. So you mentioned yes. Phoenix and, and WebSocket. So if someone opens a channel and you link something that needs to happen while that user is connected, and they disconnect, like there's no cleanup, it's linked, it's gonna go away because the WebSocket disconnected and so consequently it, it gets the message to, to die. Yes. So, like you don't have to do, there's this whole level of like cleanup and like would you even think to do that cleanup or would it, you know, would you 
think to do it later when you realize that a bunch of stuff was still running and sucking up memory uh, and had to figure out what it was. Oper again, the operational happiness. Like the, the yeah. developer just follows the very normal way of writing uh, Erlang programs. And like you get this, this property of the system, which is like the resources used by a connection go away when the connection's gone. And that's not something you get for free in other languages. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think you know, the beauty of it, all of this happens without you having even to trigger the garbage collector, which I think is uh, because all of the memory used by the process when the process terminates is freed automatically. Yeah, and this isn't like an academic thing for me. This was literally a problem when I wrote a, an actor model based system in Ruby. Yeah. Like this was, yes. this was the thing that was very hard to get right and is basically impossible to get wrong in Elixir. Yeah, it's basically, you know, it's, you know, the, the here is, you, know, you need to write a massively concurrent system, use the right tool for the job. And, you know, the right tool for the job, you know, is one which uh, reduces accidental complexities. You know, By having the semantics of concurrency yeah. built in at a fundamental yes. level. Exactly, exactly. You know, so you know, that, you know, by avoiding accidental complexities, you can then focus on what is really, really hard, which is you know, the, the business logic of your system and not everything else around it. You know, let everything else around it you know, manage itself. Yeah, I think, it's, it's, I think it's too easy to forget that part. Like the longer I spend in Elixir, the, the less time I remember that this, <clears throat> this whole like, section of things I used to have to be worried about. So does this apply beyond software? <coughs> well, that's a good question. So if you think of it, um, you need, you know, for every, you know, for every system which never fails, right? You need at least two of everything. And, and that means, um, you know, you need at least two computers. You need at least two power supplies. You need at least two, uh, yeah, at least two, um, yeah, to, 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 yeah, to, to, yeah, at least two network interfaces. Uh, because you know, if you don't, you've got at least, you know, you end up with one single point of failure. And you know, I've got two stories here where you know, the first one is uh, you know, I was visiting AT and T giving a guest lecture, and it was the head office in New Jersey, and uh, they. They go in and say, hey, you know, uh, you know and I was telling about, about no single point of failure. And one of the engineers points out that, hey, in the Long Lines building in Manhattan, so that was, it, it's this uh, brutalist uh, uh, building in, you know, close to, in, in downtown Manhattan um, with no windows. It, it, and it was built to house uh, telephony switches. Uh, rumors is, you know, which you know, at the time were huge, were built in the 70s, you know, which housed telephony switches. Uh, rumors today have it that the NSA actually have all of their computers there because uh, uh, it's it's kind of atomic, you know, it's bomb proof, and uh, it's it was built to never fail. And company well, uh, wires aren't going to spy on themselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, and you know what they said is in the cellar, we have a tank of petrol of gas, which is enough to power our generators for two weeks. So if there is an outage, if there is an outage in, uh, in uh, if there's an outage in um, a power outage in Manhattan, the phone switches in the long lines building will continue running for two weeks um, you know, until, the, the, you know, until either you know, they restore the electricity or the power fails. That is impressive. And, you know, and that's what you need to think about when you're dealing with no single point of failure. 
another favorite story is, and again, it reminds me that it's, you know, you, you can do as much as you want to protect yourself in, in the software, but obviously you know, there are many other moving components was, uh, was a switch, which, um, which uh, some colleagues of mine were involved in implementing. And the switch had been up and running for three years. It had never been rebooted. And it, it, it just, and it was handling all of the international um, trunk, the international trunks, all of the international trunks for a major carrier in a city with, uh, you know, 10 plus million inhabitants. And, you know, everything else has been anonymized, you know, to, to protect the innocent here. But uh, what happened is after three years uh, of the switch, never having been rebooted, never having, you know, without having had any issues whatsoever, um, and they hadn't even upgraded it. Uh, Ericsson goes in and tells the customer that, okay, sorry, but you know, this software you know, version you're running on will now no longer be supported. So what I would suggest we do is we just upgrade to the latest version of, uh, you know, of, of the system. And in doing so, uh, you know, this will, however, require a reboot. Yeah, we do have live upgrade, but that would mean free live upgrades because we'd have to upgrade from one version to the second, from the second to the third, from the third to the fourth. So avoiding free live upgrades, we'll just write some scripts, which will migrate the data. We will go in and then just reboot the system. You know, so you, you, you know, there won't be any outages because you know, there's, once again, there are two CPUs. So we'll reboot the system. You know, the other CPU ha you know, takes over the load. Uh, we start off a new system, move the traffic over to it, reboot the second. And so the customer agreed to it. And they went in, you know, ran the upgrade scripts, rebooted the system, and the, 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 the machine wouldn't start up. The computer wouldn't start, start up. And when that failed, um, they panicked, and they automatically went in and upgraded the, the, the other node, which was now the primary node, rebooted it, and that ground to halt as well. That wouldn't start up either. And obviously you can imagine support engineers who after three years of not having to do any firefighting um, ended up, you know, you know, didn't know what to do in the end, you know, they ended up having to fly over an engineer who couldn't figure out what happened. So about a week later, this outage happened a week, a colleague of mine had two new boards hidden in his jacket, in his raincoat, walking through customs in this country because had they FedEx the boards, they would have been stuck in customs for months on end. Went in, put in the new boards, and uh, you know, got the system up and running. And hey, all, all of a sudden the switch was, were run, well, yeah, were, was up again. So they had to basically change the hardware. And obviously this had reached you know, CEO level communication. So there was a very detailed post-mortem. And you know, these systems were uh, running Solaris at the time. And what they discovered is that the Solaris, the boot sectors of the hard drive are the external sectors of the disk. The system hadn't been you know, rebooted for three years. That meant that the, hard, the head of the hard disk had moved you know, backwards and forwards without touching the external sectors. And so a thin layer of dust in these hermetic, hermetically sealed, uh, these hermetically sealed uh, nodes basically collected and when they went in to reboot it, the hard drive, the, the, the head just kind of touched this thin layer of dust and ground to a halt. 
and could it restart? So, you know, this always comes as a reminder that, you know, two hour everything is not always enough. You know, there are lots of other factors you need to keep in mind, you know, when, 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 when dealing with software, you know, which, which never fails. Yeah, so it all came down to hardware failure. Exactly, hardware failure, which, uh, you know, which no one could have, yeah, which, which no one thought was, you know, would have been an issue back then. That, that does sound like a very detailed postmortem. So yes, <laughs> and, and the fact that the hardware failure relied on on the system—I mean, it ultimately came down to the system didn't need to be restarted ever. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so, so ever since you know there was a patch which got added, which uh, every day, every night at midnight, so when the traffic is usually lowest, um, all of these switches started doing disk aerobics, and so the head would move backwards and forwards. Uh, you know, to spread the dust evenly across the whole disk to avoid issues like this happening ever again. And it was the only time this issue actually ever happened. Wow. Yeah. That's great. So, so yeah, it's, you need to think about that. It's just not, it's just not about software. There are a lot of factors which, which you need to keep in mind when, when you're dealing with, uh, with systems which have to scale but also never fail. I want to see the function name for the routine that sweeps dust off a hard drive platter. <laughs> I'm sure they gave it a Swedish name. <laughs> a bit look like your IKEA furniture, you know, it's uh... That makes me want to see it more, not less. <laughs> so have we covered this topic thoroughly? Is there anything we missed? I think we, you know, we've covered a lot of detail, yes. There's nothing else which comes to my mind. All right, sounds good. Well, let, let's go ahead and head toward wrapping up. Um, real quick, though, Francesco, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, Twitter, my hashtag, my, 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 my handle is Francesco C. That, that's the easiest way to get hold of me. Awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Josh, do you want to start us off with the picks? Yeah, I've got a couple of maybe weird ones. Um, <clears throat> the first one is a link to the Wikipedia page for cybernetics, uh, which my mental uh, understanding of <coughs> cybernetics was actually primarily concerned with was, was just way off. Uh, but in general, it's, uh, it's systems thinking. And um, it was defined way back in 1948. And it's, it's super interesting to sort of have this whole new word to dig into in depth that relates to a thing that I like a whole lot, but you know, most most uh, books or whatever that are talking about systems thinking in, in the modern sense are, you know, they're, they're going to be different than, than stuff written in the 50s that was not specifically around, say, computer systems thinking or whatever later. Um, anyway, so I, I find that interesting. And then uh, I need to find the link really quick, but Jessica, Jessica Kerr has a, an article on, uh, I think it was called, here it is, I'm about to share it. Um, it's called The Origins of Opera and the Future of Programming. It's an article from last year that she wrote, and it's just, just a really good article about um, sort of the groups that, that come together and, and make each other better and, and make a thing that is better than themselves. But it's about a lot more than that. So um, anyway, just both, both that article is a very good read, and the Cybernetics Wiki is uh, super interesting to me, at least, and maybe someone else will find it interesting. Very cool. And uh, yeah, Jessica is a former Ruby Rogues panelist and she's always got really interesting and smart stuff to share. So I've read that one. I love it. Yeah. All right, Mark, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I was just going to share kind of following on this uh, topic we had today. I wrote a blog post 
um, last year called People Are Processes, where I kind of dig into some of those ideas that we talked about with encapsulation of state into processes and how that maps to people and just kind of that whole way that we can think about elixir systems. So I was just going to mention that as something that people who are newer to this topic can read and kind of go into a little bit more at their own leisure. Cool. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Um, now, this is something I hate doing this, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so so uh, I'll, I'll do one pick of one thing that I've used, and then I'm going to pick some stuff that I'm excited to get tomorrow. So, um, And that's why I hate doing it. It's because I haven't actually used it. But So the thing that I have used is VRBO. Um, I have found it to be a terrific way to save some money when I travel. So especially when I go to Las Vegas. Um, because typically I'll drive down in my truck and because I live in Salt Lake City, you know, so it's five or six hours, uh, depending on how the roads are. And, it's and a beautiful how drive drive. as well. What was that? It's a beautiful drive as well. I've done it uh, twice. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty great drive. I, I really enjoy it. Um, my wife and I tend to go down to St. George, which is an hour-ish before Las Vegas on that same road but anyway um yeah I, I wind up in las vegas probably three or four times a year for different events so last time i went with ces um and i i found a really nice uh a studio apartment to be sick the whole time in um this time i'm hoping to have a much better experience but i just booked another one in las vegas um and this one it's interesting they actually booked me into a a small condo that's part of the MGM Grand campus, I guess. And the conference I'm going to is in the Tropicana, so I have to walk like a block and a half. Anyway, um, it, it's really a great way to go. It's, it was cheaper than staying in the Tropicana. I don't mind walking over there. And it's just, a, anyway, they tend to have nice places. Um, I used to go with Airbnb, but I got booked into a couple of places in Airbnb that had some kind of issue one way or the other. I think the worst was um, when I rented a place in North Las Vegas in a not very friendly part of town, we'll put it that way. Um, and whoever was living in it um, was a heavy smoker. And so I got in there and the smell just about knocked me down. And, you know, I don't begrudge anyone smoking, but I, you know, I don't prefer to stay in places like that, I guess. So anyway, um, and then, um, I kept hearing sounds outside that made me uncomfortable. So I went and checked into a hotel the last two days I was in Las Vegas that time. But yeah, VRBO I've never had a problem with. So I have to say, I, I was, I had listing number 93 on VRBO. I think it was in 1995, 1996 when the company had just started. I was still in university uh, renting out my parents' properties back in Umbria in Italy. So I, I was on the other side, you know, but right when they were still uh, still setting up all the properties by hand, you know, right in the mm -hmm. HTML by hand. Uh, I think Lynn was the founder, you know, we were corresponding extensively before they got bought up by HomeAway, which is now part of Expedia. So right. yeah, I've, yeah, I've used VRBO, you know, both sides, you know, both as a, you know, to list apartments, but also, uh, yeah, as a, as a user. Cool. Yep. I'll also throw out that uh, the train ride through Umbria is gorgeous as well. So. Yes. <laughs> I haven't driven through it, but I've ridden a train through it. So That's where you find me when I'm not in London or in America. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful down yeah. there. 
Um, so the two things that I ordered that I'm really excited for, I've, I've been getting into uh, video and YouTube some more. Um, and I think I picked on a previous show, and if I didn't, I guess I'll just mention it. But I got a Canon M, uh, EOS M6, EOS M6. And uh, I got a road shotgun mic to go on top of it so that I can record videos when I'm on the go. And um, I, I specifically got it for CES this year. And then that was the trip that I was sick in the apartment or in the condo the whole time while I was there instead of going to many of the events. But um, anyway, uh, I, I need some light. So I got some LED lights off of Amazon um, on the recommendation of Dave Kamira from <coughs> Rogues. And then I also got a, uh, an HDMI um, input for my computer so that I can hook my camera up to my computer as a webcam. And then I can actually see what's going on because the shotgun mic sits on top of the camera. Makes it really hard for me to flip the viewfinder up and actually be able to see it because the microphone's right in front of it. So yeah, anyway, I'm excited for that. Um, I also got... Um, uh, what do you call it? I got a green screen as well. So looking forward to playing with all that stuff. Francesco, do you have some picks for us? I have two actually. Um, one is uh, Fred Hebert's uh, latest book, so property-based testing with proper, uh, you know, using Elixir. And I think you know, this is a book which I've seen him write and grow and which I think everyone who wants to, you know, write, you know, well-tested software needs to read and understand. Uh, Property-based testing, I think, is an incredibly powerful technique. It's not for the faint of heart, but uh, yeah, um, Fred, you know, in, in his book, kind of removes the stress and makes it available to the masses. So I really recommend that. And the second is a panel discussion. So I was really lucky to be able to get um, uh, Sir Tony Hoare, uh, Joe Armstrong, and Carl Hewitt in the same room and get them to start talking about the past, present, and future of concurrency models. Yeah, I wanted, you know, my, my, my main reason was, you know, to get, you know, to, to go in and document and, and create a panel discussion, which I think the younger generation of programmers could listen to, to, to go in and understand and appreciate you know, where I think a lot of the ideas and the tools they're using around concurrency models are coming from. And I, we're, you know, the, 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 the panel discussion, the transcripts are going to be released this week. And I warmly, if you, if you care about concurrency, I warmly recommend you go in and listen to it. it there's some real kind of golden nuggets which, uh, you know, start off with me asking them, you know, what problem were you trying to solve? And, you know, and I'll give that away as a spoiler, but, uh, you know, you ask Carl Hewitt, he was trying to figure out a model for programming distributed computers. He came out with the actor model. You ask, um, you know, uh, Tony Hoare, you know, what problem were you trying to solve? And he was more or less at the same time as Carl Hewitt. He actually, you know, references Carl Hewitt in his uh, CSP paper your concurrent sequential process paper, he said, well, you know, how do we write programs which will, you know, scale on transputers? So he's basically solving the multi-core, the scalability, of, you know, today the scalability of multi-core problems. And, you know, third, you know, came Joe Armstrong, who you knew about CSP, but had no idea about the actor model, which came up with the Erlang style concurrency. What problem was he trying to solve? That of fault tolerance. How do you build a fault tolerance system? 
So, you know, and, and that's just the first kind of two minutes of this, this panel discussion, which lasts about an hour. And yeah, I, yeah, and I, it, it's a great follow-up. I warmly recommend you have a look at it. You know, the link's available here. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Sounds awesome. All right. Well, um, if that's all we've got, then we'll wrap up. Uh, thanks for coming, Francesco. That was a lot of fun, and uh, I learned a ton. So I'm I'm excited to go back through and kind of uh, kind of reindex a lot of these points. I really enjoyed it myself. You know, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we'll wrap this up, and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.